0: Excited to be back with another episode. This letter is particularly intriguing to me, so I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm excited to share some of the different ideas and insights that came up for me as I was reflecting on the questions. So I'm going to go ahead and just read through the letter first and then discuss it. But actually, I do want to let you know about a couple of announcements. So I will be recording another episode at the end of September with another therapist. And it's going to be on parenting. It should be a really, really cool, interesting episode. So just be watching for that. That'll probably come out the beginning of October. The other thing I wanted to mention is I am also planning on hosting a social in October. So I'd love a chance to just get to know some of you. And in the past, I've done workshops. This time, I'm just going to make it a free social where you can come. We can get to know each other, hang out, have a good time. So be looking for any announcements on that coming through in the next probably two, three weeks as well. So that'll be sometime in probably the the second or so week of October. And if you have any questions, send your questions through to xmormontherapist at gmail.com. And let's get into today's letter. I'm going to go ahead and read through it, and then I will discuss. The letter says... Hi, I'd really appreciate any insight and advice you might be able to provide me. I'm not Mormon. I have never been Mormon. Despite this, I've always been interested in religion, though I'm now an atheist. When I met my wife, she classified herself as a non-Mormon. Although it was no secret she had grown up in a Mormon household and was a practicing LDS member until her late teens. She was adamant that she would... And then the letter actually just goes blank here, so the paragraph doesn't finish but it starts with an N. So I'm guessing she was adamant she would never go back, maybe, is how I read through the context of the letter. Okay, so continuing on, he says, We married and have three wonderful children together. We had a crisis with our middle child's health during pregnancy. Everything thankfully worked out fine, and she has since rapidly re-entered the church with vigor. Prior to that, things were just fine. My first question relates to personality. Do Mormons or, given the gender inequality that lies within the church, Mormon women, to be more precise, have a distinctly different personality compared to non-Mormon counterparts. I have certainly noticed a big change in my wife in the last four years. She claims I'm just being paranoid, and it's the natural evolution of anyone becoming a parent. Secondly, is there any doctrine or guidance from within the church as to what constitutes quote, acceptable intimacy behavior between a married couple Without going into sordid details, does the church frown on anything that's not plain vanilla? Even kissing and open affection seemed to decline sharply as her faith became more fervent. I'd appreciate any help that you could give me. Kind regards. Looking for insight. And that's the alias I gave you, if the letter writer's listening, because that's really what I felt in this letter was just, you know, real, real questions here. Looking for some insight. Looking for some information. So I'm excited to share some of the ideas and information that I have today. First, I want to answer your real basic questions, like the questions that are on the surface. And then I want to go a little bit deeper into a deeper question that's in this letter. So the more surface questions that seem important still to address are do Mormons or specifically women have a distinctly different personality compared to non-Mormon counterparts? My own opinion would be no. And I'll talk a little bit about why that's my opinion. Now, um, you'll see how our personality expressions can change with emotional stressors and events and some of our like weaknesses or some of our shadow areas in life, like places that we're not really sure how to process information or we're not really sure how to work with our own you know weaknesses or blind spots. And so any of our, any of us are vulnerable to our personality expressions changing over time or shifting for periods of time. And that's the kind of deeper question we're going to go into today. That can happen for people, whether they're in Mormonism or not in Mormonism, whether they're in religion, not in religion. So, you know, hopefully as I express some of these ideas, what we'll start to see is the church becomes a channel for people to express certain things. So for example, if somebody needs anxiety, if they're in sort of an addictive cycle with anxiety, they may continue to hold on to the church to create anxious experiences or OCD kind of experiences. Other people won't experience that in the church. The channel of the church will be a completely different kind of experience to them. So it's not that there's not some patterns that happen But I would say what starts to happen when people really process the present moment in their present experiences more fully, the need for religion sort of drops away. And they may use religion to kind of help them with certain positive aspects of their experience, but they don't get lost in religion, nor do they become a servant to religion. And so... I think about it similarly with any other habit or anything that be- can become addictive. Um, you know, it's one thing to, to have a, a glass of wine or have a beer. It's a different thing to feel like you're rotating your life around alcohol and or have to have alcohol to feel okay. Um, so, you know, it's kind of similar with religion and or a lot of other things in life that can become addictive um, or that we can end up becoming servants to, whether it's food, sleep, physical exercise, uh, whether it's the mind. So, we're gonna talk a little bit more about how some of this works with personality specifically, and there's some really cool ideas for how to explore this. So, we're gonna get there, but my first thought would be that, you know, people who are real fundamental in any religion, or people who are real orthodox or more rigid in any religion, Yes, they're going to have a different personality than people who are are less rigid. So it may look like, you know, maybe Mormon women have a different personality than non-Mormon women. But again, my sense is we actually all respond to stressors with certain patterns, and that can happen whether we're in religion or not in religion. Religion can just be one of the outlets for a unhealthy pattern or a coping mechanism. And I think I've talked about that on the episodes before, but... Hopefully, it'll make more sense as we go through that today. So I'm just kind of throwing out some ideas here. I'm trying to find a way to explain it. Hopefully, that's making some sense. I think it'll make more sense when we go into details about it. So the other thing I just want to answer that's kind of on the surface, it's more basic. Uh, You asked, secondly, is there any doctrine or guidance from within the church as to what constitutes acceptable intimacy behavior between a married couple From what I understand, this has changed over time. So in the past, there has been more guidance around this or more rigidity or more rules around it in terms of what was acceptable and intimacy between a married couple. For example, I believe that oral sex is something that has been frowned upon in the past. Um, They haven't necessarily gone back and said, you know, now, now we invite that into marriages, but they've gone, they've come into the present and said, we no longer go into the bedroom and you know, whatever feels comfortable between you and your partner is up to you, as long as it doesn't include things like infidelity. So I think that's something that has changed over time. Some people still go back to the more original guidance or structured rules around sexuality within a married couple. So there are still couples who don't want to do anything but, you know, what you, what you call plain vanilla And they don't want to include oral sex or hand sex or maybe anal play, things like that. So I do know that there are couples who still will kind of go back to that as a way to deal with anything that feels uncomfortable. And also couples who still choose not to use birth control, for example, um, even though that's no longer a rule or a guideline within the church, but it once was. So, you know, it's something that has changed over time. But again, when people get more entrenched in the fervor or the fundamentalist aspects of a religion, they will sometimes go back to the past and attach to the past, especially if the past was never actually fully resolved or corrected. And in the mind, that becomes hard to understand. Like, how could it go from this rule to we no longer, you know, whatever's up to you guys, whatever feels comfortable, someone who's more fervent may go into that and really believe that, you know, I'm more righteous if I go back to that original guideline. So I don't know if that's impacting her at all. My sense is, and we'll go through this as we go through the personality stuff, there's something deeper impacting her that has to do with her connection to her body. And part of the reason my sense is that that is true is because you said that even kissing and open affection seemed to decline sharply as her faith became more fervent. And so that's not something that, The church talks about in terms of kissing and open affection. I don't believe that's something that's in the doctrine. In my experience with Mormonism, that wasn't something I was ever taught, that kissing and open affection was wrong or that it should be regulated or anything like that. So the fact that even that is declining, even kissing and open affection is declining, leads me to believe this is a deeper issue in terms of her being connected to her body. And we're going to talk about that. Okay, so the first thing that popped up as I was reading this letter was I thought about the Enneagram personality assessment. This is a personality assessment that you can take online. And actually, I recently looked up their website and it looked like their website was down, and they said that they were gonna be um, they were revamping some stuff and they were planning on having the website back up on August 29th, which today happens to be. And so they may have their website back up today. In fact, maybe I'll double-check that before I put this episode out. But either way, you know, it may be interesting for anyone listening to go to, you can just Google the Enneagram Institute. That's E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M, the Enneagram Institute. And you can go there. You can take the test online for, I think it's like $12, and then they'll send you your personality profiling and details about, you know, how you can interpret the results and, and go through it all. And it really is kind of an interesting assessment. So the first thing that popped up, as, popped up as I read this letter was the Enneagram. Because one of the things it talks about is how stressors and our own blind spots can actually bring out different parts or shadow parts of our personality. And they can look like the the stressed parts of other certain personality styles. And so um, I'll go through more details, but that's the first thing that ta- that popped up. So we're going to talk about that. The other thing that came up for me as I read was, again, how religion can be like a drug. It can it can bring about this sort of chemical high. And when we're looking at the reality and what's happening, there can be a sort of, quote, change cycle. So there's a change cycle in addiction. And the first step is denial, which is similar to the first step in the grieving process. And so I was thinking a little bit about, you know, how sometimes we're coping in life. And we don't even know we're coping. We just think it's normal. And it is normal. It's normal to cope. It's normal to have stressors that are so big that we don't know how to fully process that that even years later, we're in sort of the denial and or bargaining stage of grieving um, and or denial and bargaining stage of an addiction, where we either are in denial about how we're using this addiction or coping mechanism or we're in the bargaining stage of it. The third thing I want to talk about that popped up is how Mormonism does view light and dark, life and death. And we're going to talk about that in the context of how other perspectives view it, just to give us some ideas of, you know, someone who's drawn into a little bit more of a fervor kind of experience with Mormonism. One of the things that they may be trying to do in terms of dealing with something that looks dark Um, or death. Death can often look dark to us. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. The fourth thing I want to talk about is what you can do right now in this experience with your partner. So I'm going to go through four different areas as we go through this episode today that popped up as I went through your letter. And hopefully it will start to piece some things together and give you some ideas about how to move forward. Okay, so let's start by talking about the personality profiling stuff and how that might play into this. So with the Enneagram assessment, when I took it, I don't know, it was about a year or two ago, and my main profile type came out a number two. There are nine different profile there's nine different personality types. and the way it works is most people will have what they call like a main personality type and then they'll have uh, one or two what they call wings. So kind of like companion types. Um, and then there's, there might be some others that kind of also fit in there. The idea is that we all have all nine personality aspects in us. There's just certain ones that we tend to really express more and that create more of our personality foundation. So yeah, my main one was a two, but I also had what they call a wing. And I believe one of my wings was a number five, which is what they call the investigator. I'm going to go in and read a little bit because in the personality profiles, what they will show is when people become imbalanced, which addictions are they most prone to. They also show in the personality profiling nine different levels of emotional mental health. And so they show the three highest, healthiest levels and what that looks like. Then they show three medium levels or what they call average levels. And so if our emotional mental health is kind of average, how can that express, how does our personality express itself? And then three, unhealthy levels. So if we're in a more unhealthy emotional mental space, how does our personality express itself? And so I'm going to read through a little bit of that just because it might give you some ideas as to what's going on. So I'm going to pull this up here. So I obviously don't know, you know, what your wife's main personality style is, but she may have some aspect of what they call the investigator, level five showing up. You know, what I would say is it sounds like something shifted a little bit in your experience with the second pregnancy where you described it as a traumatic pregnancy experience, even though thankfully everything worked out fine. What can happen is when we're faced with some kind of trauma where we really suddenly see quick edit, when I'm saying morality here, I actually mean mortality. Our morality mirrored to us right through our baby's morality or through through pregnancy complications, suddenly there's just this deeper awareness of life. And that also means a deeper awareness of death, that both are, are real in our experience. And so suddenly, how do we process that, right? It's one thing to be a teenager and to be not super connected to that awareness and to feel rebellious against a religion or Feel like, gosh, something about this isn't working, or screw it, or um, you know, whatever was going on for her in her late teens that got her to step back and leave. And it sounds like she was very adamant, which might have meant that there was a very like strong stepping back, or rebellion, or conflict with the religion. But it may not have been fully resolved. And this traumatic experience gave her a chance to face something she hadn't faced before, which is our morality. Mortality, our mortality. So that's something about that doesn't sound right. So you know, it might have given her a chance to face her mortality, and suddenly she's going back to this thing that was there in her family of origin that is there to help comfort. And so I'm, I'm guessing she's having difficulty fully processing what happened. And so what can happen is a level five in the level five personality profile in the Enneagram. They talk about the three highest healthy levels and I'm not actually going to go through those right now, but they then go through the next three levels, which they call average levels. So again, if our emotional or mental health is average, how can we manifest our personality? Level five, which is the middle average level. Okay. So it's right in the center of like health and unhealth or balance or imbalance. Level five says that the personality expresses itself by becoming increasingly detached as they become involved with complicated ideas or imaginary worlds, they become preoccupied with their visions and interpretations rather than reality. They may become fascinated by offbeat or esoteric subjects. It could even be that they become fascinated by offbeat or esoteric subjects that involve darker, disturbing elements. That doesn't sound so true of her. It sounds like she's going towards one, ones that, quote, look light. But they can become detached from the practical world and also can, can show up as a little bit more high-strung and intense. So this might be what's been happening for her is that with whatever happened with that trauma in the pregnancy, it hasn't been fully processed or resolved, and she's just continued to become increasingly detached and involved with, you know, in this case, Mormonism. But again, it could be for anyone, it could be they become in- involved with complicated ideas, you know, real complicated science that's that's not clear yet or imaginary worlds. And man, as I'm reading this, I'm like, I get it. I've been there at times. I can very well remember times where I've become preoccupied with these kinds of outlets. And so the personality then expresses itself that way. It looks like re- more religious fervor or stronger religious conviction, anything like that, but often it's connected to stress, anxiety, and lack of resources or inability to process trauma and present emotions. So I'm going to go through some of the examples they give in terms of how to work with that and how to rebalance and what they call it as personal growth recommendations. And, you know, I don't know, your wife may or may not ever be listening to this episode. So hopefully, again, this is just something that gives you an idea of how this can work. And for anyone else who's listening, those who've been really involved in religious fervor, you may have um, some personality type 5 in you a little bit stronger, um, whether again, whether it's your main profile or not. And so for anyone listening, these personal growth recommendations may come in handy and they might be helpful. So I am going to read through a few of them and then talk about how they can fit in with the grieving process in particular. So um, the personal growth recommendations for Enneagram type 5s, or what they call the investigator, is one of the The recommendations is to learn to notice when your thinking and speculating takes you out of the immediacy of your experience or it takes you out of the present moment of, of what you're really experiencing and what you need to feel and go through now. Your mental capacities can be an extraordinary gift, but also can be a trap when you use them to retreat from contact with yourself and others. Stay connected with your physicality, it says. So I do think that this is one of the things that can happen for type fives. When there is stress and they go into their mind and they want to work it all out there is we actually tend to retreat from our physicality. And that's where we go, oh, we don't need sex so much. I don't need to pay attention to my physical needs, eating well, sleeping well, things like that. So if your wife has been retreating from physical contact, that's good information she may be relying on her mind and or imaginary worlds that are coming through her mind and her, more of her right brain process, She's. it sounds like she's not as present in her body and available for sexuality and physicality, and that would actually be really important for her to get back into her body. If she's listening to this or um, if she's open to looking at this at some point, yoga and sex and presence when she eats, getting real present to taste, textures, things like that, really coming back into her physical senses will be probably really helpful for her. So that would be one thing. And also it just might explain why she's retreating physically. Because again, when we go into more imbalanced places, we tend to want to just continue moving more and more into the imbalance until something shifts us and we again can do some of the processing or we see it more clearly and then suddenly we're willing to get balanced again but if she's moving into the imbalance or if she's staying in the imbalance then she's likely retreating from her physicality including her sexuality okay so another personality personal growth recommendation for type five is it says here you tend to be extremely intense and can get high strung and find it difficult to relax and unwind so for people in this space it's important to make an effort to learn to calm down in a healthy way Uh, without drugs or alcohol. Exercising can be really helpful. Using biofeedback techniques can be helpful. Meditation, jogging, yoga, and dancing are especially helpful for your type. You see many possibilities, but often do not know how to choose among them or judge which is more important or less important. When you're caught in your fixation, a sense of perspective can be missing, and with it the ability to make accurate assessments. Again, this might be part of what's happening for her. At such time, it can be helpful to get the advice of someone whose judgment you trust while you are gaining perspective on your situation. Doing this can also help you trust someone else, a difficulty for your type. Notice when you are getting intensely involved in projects that do not necessarily support your self-esteem, confidence, or life situation. It is possible to follow many different fascinating subjects. Games and pastimes or imaginary worlds, but they can become a huge distraction from what you really need to do, from what you know you really need to do. Um, So, again, I think this is where religion can come in and it can be a distraction from really facing the present moment, what needs to be done in our body, what needs to be done in our relationships. Decisive action will bring more confidence than learning more facts or acquiring more unrelated skills, um, or I'm going to add in here, or focusing more on the unknown, you know. Okay, so that those are some of the personal growth recommendations for type fives and especially if there's some imbalance going on. So again, your wife may not be listening to this and so my suggestion for you would be for you to get online and take the Enneagram and for you to learn about your main profile type and then if you have wings or kind of like subtypes, what your subtypes are and look at where you are on your own level of emotional mental health and or anywhere where you can start to do personal growth recommendations for your own type. Um, it may be, and I'm going to skip here to the last topic I wanted to talk about, which is what, what you can do from your end here. I'm going to actually talk about that first and then backtrack. So because one of the perspectives I work with is that, you know, we can sometimes get lost in feeling like other people's choices are impacting our life and creating a situation where we can't have the life we want, right? So if our partner's struggling, if our partner's going into one of these unhealthy or imbalanced expressions of personality, then how does that impact us? Do we believe we're never going to have the relationship we really want? Do we believe that our children are never are going to have, you know, a mother that's kind of crazy? What are the beliefs that you have popping up? Because the other, quote, story I like to work with when I'm working with couples is if something's popping up for one of the partners and it's impacting you, which it would and should in this situation, that makes perfect sense, then on some level there is also a possibility that something is being mirrored to you that you do have control over that you can work on. Because again, you can't work on her part. So that's where I'd say for you, get on, take the Enneagram, start to read through, see if there are any blind spots that might be popping up for you and or read through the personal growth recommendations for your own type. The other thing is you may be playing out some of the opposites in terms of imbalance. You may may be playing out some of the opposite responses to her responses. So for example, one of the things I see happen when people face something that looks really dark like death or a breakup or sickness or something like that, we can go into sort of an emotional imaginary world type coping mechanism, which is where religion can come forward, and that can be based more on right brain needs, which are more emotional and considered the feminine aspect within us, and so that might be, you know, one of the things that's happening and maybe one of the reasons why we see more women go to religion to deal with this kind of stuff, but one of the other things that can happen is we go to real logical, scientific, matter-of-fact, left brain responses that can also be imbalanced Imbalanced, I am imbalanced to cope with again what looks dark to us, what's unknown, what's not fully understood yet, such as death or breakups or or some kind of trauma, illness, anything like that. So, so you may be playing out the left side in the left brain imbalance, where she's playing out the right brain imbalance. I don't know. That's something you would need to look at and face. Um, which is, am I trying to intellectualize my way through this? Was I trying to intellectualize my way through? the pregnancy trauma? Did I try to get her to kind of look at it just logically? What was going on here? Did I skip over the emotional experience that was needed? And is she, again, mirroring that back now? And how do you get back in your own body? And how do you start to feel things you need to feel again as well? So even though you're, it sounds like, you know, you're more engaged in wanting to be sexually involved with each other, It still might be interesting for you to do some practices in terms of getting real present with your body in emotional experiences to really start to tap in and look at, you know, what was this like for me emotionally? And or did I feel kind of numb through the experience? And or did I feel some of it, but are there aspects that I haven't fully felt? So again, I have no idea if that will resonate Um, or if that's a part of what's been going on, that's just an idea for you to explore. Um, I didn't get any sense through your letter whether or not that's happening. I just know when our partner's really playing a part or a role that looks looks at odds with something in us or something we're wanting in our relationship, it might be that they're playing out this opposite of something we're playing out, another side of the polarity we're playing out, but we're not yet aware of. So those are some ideas for you would be... A, to go and take the Enneagram, learn more about your own personality type and or subtypes, and look at the personal growth recommendations for that. Another idea would be to practice getting into your body and emotions more. And notice if you used intellectualism and or matter-of-factness and or numbness to kind of cope with what happened during the second pregnancy, the traumatic pregnancy. And this is where I want to go back to Mormonism in general so because Mormonism really focuses on what are called the light aspects of life, quote, light aspects, it's really focused on um, positivity and prosperity and life, life-giving things and health. And all of that can be really good, but one of the things that can happen in the Mormon perspective is a lot of fear or blocking off or resistance to what we might call the darker aspects. So negativity, cynicism, death, illness, lack of prosperity, darker emotions, jealousy, anger. So yeah, it might be if your wife is going towards something that's, you know, real focused on, quote, the light, again, there's a balance that's needed in people who really attach to Mormonism, that's sometimes the information that we're getting from that experience is is that, you know, what's the fear of what we call the dark? So, for example, there are some religions and some traditions that work to create space for the whole, and that is a little bit more Eastern. Some of the Western traditions are a little bit more focused on splitting the two apart, the dark and the light. For example, in the Hindu tradition... They have a three-part godhead. And I I know there's a lot of different branches of the Hindu tradition, so I don't know how this plays out for all branches. I just know when I was talking to a woman who had studied Hinduism, the branch that she had been interested in, they had a three-part godhead, a creator, a sustainer, and a destroyer. So in this branch of the Hindu tradition that she had been studying, the destroyer was a part of the godhead, right? In Mormonism, the destroyer is... um, is the devil. And ultimately, death comes from the darkness. Because one day, we're going to live in a space where there is no more death, right? And other, so other religions, again, hold all three, creation, sustaining, and destruction, as all being a part of God. In the Bhagavad Gita, which is a Hindu text, God is, I believe it was Shiva was the name of the, the blue guy. So it's a, it, they use this mythology. And in it, there's There's the God. He's this blue man. And he is everything that is both beautiful and amazing and gorgeous, but he's also everything that is awful, hideous, scary, and terrifying. So he is a representation of the whole. Again, life-giving, but also death and illness and everything that's ugly. What I really liked about these perspectives when I got into doing therapy is I began to see that people's, quote, dark sides, their anger, their jealousy, their violence that all of that was actually connected to deeper desires inside that were actually, I guess, could be seen as like positive. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. But I began to see that like both our positive and our negative are ultimately trying to serve this evolution that's happening within us. And, you know, the dark side can become very imbalanced and can take over and create a lot of destruction. And it looks really awful and it feels really icky. And, it, you know, it's really hard for us to process when that stuff happens. But the light side alone is not the whole story. And so we want to really look at, my wife might be struggling to integrate the whole of this experience, this trauma that's happened with the pregnancy. And who knows, she might be responding to other traumas. The pregnancy might just be a piece of it. She may have traumas around being a mother that are coming up and she's just feeling like they're normal, not knowing that there's something to process there. And she's actually responding um, with some reactions. And again, you can look at where am I not fully engaged in the whole of my own experience and working a little bit with that. So she may be mirroring this imbalance to you. You may have ignored some of the emotional pieces in your own life that really need to be sat with. Um, and again, the pregnancy trauma might be part of that, but you may also want to look at other experiences in your life around fathering um, or your career, anything like that where maybe you've kind of um, gone numb or you've tried to intellectualize your way through an experience to avoid the emotional processing that may need to be happening as well. Intellectual processing is really important, but emotional and body processing is also really huge to complete the whole process. If we're skipping the emotions, then um, we can get in some struggle with it. Okay, so I hope that's helping make some sense. I feel like I'm just kind of starting to ramble here. So I'm going to close up this part with two stories. And then I'm going to leave you with something that you could do with her. First story I wanted to share is regarding a family. And in this family, they had a struggle with one of their pregnancies. The child was born prematurely. And they were not sure the child was going to live. I mean, it was a really, really risky situation. But basically what happened is the father did one of the stages of grieving when he bargained with God. And he came from, I believe it was like a Catholic background. It wasn't Mormon, but it was a Christian religion. And he hadn't been involved since his teenage years as well. And he'd been real resistant to it. Religion was not something he was interested in. When this child of theirs was getting close to being born and they were having this premature situation happen, he bargained with God that he would go to mass every day if God kept his child alive. And the child did live kind of, a, you know, one of those miraculous experiences that's not not too normal under those circumstances. And so it was a big deal. The child lived and he ended up going to mass every day, every morning for a long time. My friend doesn't know if he still goes. This was a few years ago and she doesn't have as much contact with the family anymore. But she watched him go to mass regularly for quite a while until she she was no longer involved with family in the same way and again doesn't know what happened there. So, you know, this can be something that can go on sometimes for years. There's this bargaining stage. And again, it's a reflection not just of that experience, but a bargaining with death and loss in general. And so that's one thing that can be happening. The other story I wanted to share was an experience I had after I had left religion, and it was a couple years after I'd left religion, and I was in a relationship with someone that I'd cared a lot about and initially thought there was a real potential for this to be a long-term, maybe lifelong romantic relationship. And when it didn't work out, I felt devastated. I was I was really in a lot of pain about it, and I found myself coping by imagining, well, not even imagining. I found myself coping by believing in moments of a lot of pain. My brain would go to thoughts like, maybe we'll be together in a different life. You know, I'd explore the idea of multiple lives, and I thought maybe we'll be together in a different, different life, or I thought maybe we're together in a parallel universe right now. Those were thoughts that would pop up, and it was interesting because when they pop up, I would see them, and I'd notice them. And it was like, okay, this is me bargaining. And I would just remind myself, I'd remind myself, Jenny, yeah, maybe there's multiple lives. Maybe there's parallel universes. Who knows? Who knows? But what you do know is right now you're in this life. And right now, how do you give attention to creating the life of your dreams today in this experience? Whether or not there's anything after, how do you create the life of your dreams today? Because again, thinking that way was a way to avoid doing the work of the present, and it wasn't always easy, and sometimes it really did stretch me. But without those tools, I wouldn't have noticed I was doing that. I would have just done what I had done when I was in religion, and I would have continued following those trains of thinking, maybe even got myself more obsessively involved in multiple lives or reincarnation or something like that. The idea is you know, to stay open to what we don't know. If we want to create possibilities, let ourselves do that, but to bring the attention back to what we do know and to not distract ourselves from the work of today, from feeling what we need to feel today and from engaging in and repairing our relationships with ourselves and others and life. because we might have some anger towards life. If life includes death, then we might not be so happy with life and we may have to we may have a relationship with life that needs a little bit more nurturing. So, the last thing I want to share is what came up for me at the end of the letter as I was sitting with it and reflecting on what to give you and what you and your wife could do together. And the thing that popped up was the idea that the two of you could sit down and start to imagine together. Instead of her imagining through Mormonism and creating like a rigidity around these Mormon stories, to sit down and consciously do it together, the work of imagination together. Sit down and to ask her, you and herself, if we could choose where we and our children were to go after death, what would it look like? What would it be like? Just start to create the conversations, start to consciously choose imagination. You know, what really? And if you not only for her to do this, really for you to do this, if you could choose What things were to look like after death? What would you want it to look like? And don't be afraid of imagining. Imagining doesn't mean you're going to get stuck or get rigid on and start to believe your own imagination. It just opens up possibility. It reminds us of what it's like to not know. It reminds us that there's nothing wrong with not knowing, but that not knowing can hold emotions of fear and sadness that may need to be felt and moved through the body more fully which this imagination practice can do. And on the other side, there can actually be a lot of peace, a lot of joy in just what it's like right now to be with people we love and what it's like to be connected in the present moment experience and to get more present, to really be able to be there. Sometimes this imagination practice helps us to move some of that fear and sadness through our bodies and then to get more present. So that would be my suggestion would be to sit down and do that with her. When I first came up with this idea, as I was reading through your letter, I could feel tears behind my eyes in just thinking about this idea and what it would feel like as a woman to have my husband sit down and to say, you know, let's sit and imagine what would we choose, what would we choose to have happen to us and our children after death? So looking for insight, I hope that is helpful. I really, really liked that you wrote in, even though you've never been a Mormon. I'm really glad you're able to, um, you know, listen to the podcast and to To share a question. I loved it. It was such an intriguing letter to me. I could feel intrigue for you and for your wife, but I also could feel it in my own life and understanding my own personality shifts that have happened over the years. And to look at where I am in my personality now, where I'm still struggling, where my blind spots are, and where where I'm really starting to flourish and where my health is. So I I was really looking forward to this discussion. I hope it's been helpful for everyone who's listened. And if you have any questions, send them through to exmormontherapist at gmail.com. Look forward to next month's episode on parenting. It's going to be fabulous. I'm so excited. I've been reading some books, talking to this other therapist, and we've got some really fun stuff coming up. Also, be on the lookout for the announcement about October's free social. It's going to be a great time to connect and come together. Enjoy the beginning of fall. I feel my heart opening up to all of you. This is one of my very favorite times of year, and I will talk to you soon.